Turn with me to John 15. Gospel of John, chapter 15. We're reading verses 9 through 17. And considering Christ's friends. John chapter 15, verses 9 through 17. Give attention to God's holy word. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have gathered once again to diligently use the means of grace that you've appointed. And we confess, O Lord, that at the end of this Lord's day, none of us has the strength or the ability to profit from these things unless you quicken us by your Spirit. And so we ask, O Lord, at the end of this Lord's day that you would, in your mercy, see fit to bless us once again with the anointing of your Spirit we might understand your word. We pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I'm sure that you are very aware that God made many great and precious promises to Abraham. He chose him out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he delivered him from the idolatry of his father's house, and he made many great and precious promises to Abraham. He told him to get up and go to a place that I will show you. And as Abraham arrived in the land of Canaan, the Lord worked with him over a long period of time. Abraham was the one that God made his covenant with. Abraham, as Paul calls him, is the father of the faithful. But at the end of God's work in Abraham's life, as God had tested him and tried him and brought him to the final test, of offering up his only son, his only begotten son, Abraham, through the work of God, was able to obey God. Abraham was willing to give up his only begotten son to show his loyalty to God. And probably the greatest grace that Abraham was given, probably the greatest title that Abraham was given, blessed to receive after his offering of Isaac, as James tells us in chapter 2, verse 23, is that he was called the friend of God. Can you imagine what a privilege that is? To be called the friend 
of the living God. Well, Abraham is an example to us of what it looks like to be a friend of God. And if you look at that passage in James chapter 2, that's a passage that speaks about faith and works. It's a passage that speaks about those that are the friends of God are those who not only believe in God or say they believe in God, they are those who do the works of God. They are those who follow the example of God. They are those who follow the example of Christ. In this passage, we're going to see a greater than Abraham. We're going to see one who is more faithful than Abraham, who loved God even more than Abraham loved God, who didn't give up his son. He gave up himself in obedience to God's command. But what I want you to notice from this passage and what we're going to see is that Christ himself is the model of friendship with God. And that friendship with God carries with it both a duty and a privilege. Christ is the model of friendship with God. And that friendship carries both a duty and a privilege. What we're going to see, just three things in this passage. First, the model friend. Verses 9 through 11. The model friend. Verses 9 through 11. Then we're going to see the duty of friendship. Verses 12 through 15. And then we're going to see the privileges of friendship. Verses 16 and 17. The model friend, verses 9 through 11. The duty of friendship, verses 12 through 15. And the privilege of friendship, verses 16 and 17. We begin by looking at verses 9 through 11. The model friend. Notice that Christ uses his, the, the, the Father's own love towards him as the basis for how he has loved us. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. Christ, in this passage, is being presented to us as the second Adam. He references his relationship with the Father. Now, Christ's relationship with the Father, there, there's two ways to understand this, and not clearly distinguishing these two ways has led to numerous heresies. One of the ways to understand Christ's relationship to his Father is as the eternal Son of God, who has been in communion and fellowship with the Father, world without end from all eternity. He is, as John writes at the beginning of his gospel, the Word who was with God and who is God. That's one way to think about his relationship to the Father. The other way to think about his relationship with the Father is as the incarnate God-man. It is as God veiled in flesh. And the characteristic of this relationship is that he is obedient to the Father. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, describes the incarnation. And Paul, as he writes, says that Christ was equal with God 
But he laid aside his privileges, he took on the form of a servant, and being found in fashion as a man, became obedient, even to the point of death. This Christ, who is obedient, as he describes himself here, as the second Adam, is also the head of a new covenant community. He's the head of a new covenant people. Turn to Romans chapter 5 just to see the parallel. Romans chapter 5, specifically verse 14 and 19. Romans 5 verse 14, Paul writes and says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. What Paul means there is that even those who didn't eat the forbidden fruit were also under the penalty of death of Adam because Adam was the covenant head of humanity. And then notice what he says at the end of verse 14. Adam is a type of him who was to come. Well, who is him who was to come? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So what Paul is telling us is that Adam in his capacity as the covenant head of humanity, is a type of Christ. Which means the second Adam will be the head of a second humanity. Now skip down to verse 19. Notice what he says. For, by, uh, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Notice that Paul's emphasis is on the man and his obedience. It's on the Christ as the incarnate one obeying on behalf of his covenant people. And so Christ says, as, I, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Returning now to John 15, these are two ways to consider Christ's relationship to the Father. As I mentioned, If we fail to distinguish these things, it leads to many heresies. The Arians who teach that Christ is not God would look at passages like this and see, they would say, see, Christ is obeying the Father. That means he's subordinate to the Father. That means he's merely a creature. Because they fail to distinguish the eternal nature of Christ versus the incarnate state of Christ. Here... The focus in this passage is on Christ as the incarnate one. Christ is not speaking of himself as the eternal son of God relating to the Father as an equal divine person. He's describing himself as the incarnate son of man representing his covenant people. We see this from a few examples. Notice the very next verse. Um, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Obeying commandments implies submission. God the Son is not in submission to the Father except as the incarnate one, Philippians 2. Here, Christ says, I've been in submission to my Father. Secondly, He lays down his life. Verse 13, notice what he says. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. 
Now, here's a question I want you to put your thinking caps on. Can the ever-living, eternal, unchangeable, undying God die? No, he cannot. Only men die. And so for Christ to say that I'm laying down my life, he's speaking about himself as the incarnate God-man. So that's the emphasis in this passage, Christ as the incarnate God-man. Notice in verse 10, uh, the relationship with his Father is defined by obedience. Notice the logic that Christ is using. As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Well, what is the way that the Father has loved Christ? What, What is that relationship like? Verse 10 now defines it for us. If you love me, keep my commandments, and you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. You know, often when we speak about relationships, even relationships based upon love, standards tend to be forgotten. We, we tend to think that relationships, we, we tend to confuse loving each other with liking each other. To like someone is subjective, and it's based on our shifting feelings. To love someone is objective, and it's based on God's eternal law. You see here that the highest expression, the most pristine example of man relating to God, a relationship of perfect love and perfect communion between the Son and the Father. This is a relationship where the persons never sinned against each other. There was no possibility for the Father and the Son to offend each other because they're both perfectly sinless. Even that relationship is governed by commandments. It's governed by an objective standard. Christ says, uh, first off, Christ says, I have obeyed the Father's commandments. John 8, 29. I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. John 5, 30. Christ testifies that He did not seek to do His own will, but the will of the Father who sent him. And by keeping his commandments, Christ remained in the Father's love. The love of the Father here is conditioned, it's conditional on the obedience of the Son. The Son's obedience garners him the love of the Father. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking at this point. I thought God's love was unconditional. I thought God gave His love out of His own free choice. What we're describing here, what John is describing here about the Father's love to the Son, remember, is a covenantal love. It's the love that Christ has earned because of His place as the second Adam. 
Christ, as the new representative of humanity, has to earn salvation for his people. And the salvation that he earns for his people is the love of the Father. Well, how does Christ earn salvation? He earns it by obeying the Father, by doing what Adam failed to do. It does not matter that the Son could not have sinned. In fact, that's God's grace to us, that when Adam fell, God sent his own Son to do what we could not. We could not keep God's commandments. We could not abide in his love. We could not earn eternal salvation. And so God sent his son to do it for us. Romans chapter 8. Now it's in this context, I've kept my father's commandments and therefore I have abided in his love that the father can then say at the baptism, uh, turn to the baptism of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Notice how Christ speaks to John in this passage, passage. Matthew, Matthew 3, 13. Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Are you coming to me? And then Christ says to him, Permit it so to be now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Christ went to be baptized by John out of obedience to his father. Now pay attention to what happens. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw, he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This beloved Son, in whom the Father is well pleased, is not only because he's the eternal Son of God. But this emphasis is primarily because he is the obedient second Adam. He's doing what is pleasing to the Father, and the Father looks upon him and says, I am well pleased with his obedience. And so Christ says, I've kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now notice, returning to John 15... This is the model for our relationship with Christ. Look again at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. To remain in His love, we must obey His commandments. Now, what does it mean to remain in Christ's love? What's the emphasis here In John 15, John 14, John 16, and John 17. Remember the broad context of this passage. Christ is leaving. His bodily presence is going to be beaten, bruised, bloodied, crucified. Buried, resurrected, ascended, and seated at the right hand of God. Christ in his visible manifestation is going to be stolen from them. And what Christ is teaching them is how they can continue to commune with him. How they can continue to relate to this Christ who will not be available to their eyes. How can they still know this Christ and enjoy his smile and his favor? 
How can they have Christ revealed to them more and more, even though he's taken away from their sight? Remember what happens at the baptism. Christ fulfills all righteousness, and then the heaven is opened. The Spirit descends. The Father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son. That's what it means to abide in the love of Christ. It means that he will reveal things to you of his glory and grace, of his power and his might that you have not imagined. He will show more of himself to you. This is what he says in John 14, verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. Rewinding a little bit into verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. What it means to abide in the love of Christ is that he will show you more of himself. Isn't that what friends want? When you have an intimate friendship with someone, perhaps with your spouse, perhaps with a brother or a sister, you, you want to spend time together and talk and get to know one another and find out more about them and find out their life story. And wow, that happened to you? This is what happened to me. That's amazing. Let's talk more about what's been going on in our lives. That's what it means to abide in the love of Christ. That's what Christ promises to those who walk in his commandments. More of his glory. We have to keep in mind here that uh, this is not a meritorious obedience. Christ is not promising something to our merits as if we could earn this. He's not saying that if you are good enough, I will show more of myself to you. He's saying that walking in his commandments are the means to learning more of Christ. Remember what the second commandment says. God will by no means forgive those who hate him, but he imputes the sin to the fathers, uh, from the fathers to the sons to the third and fourth generation of them that hate him. But he keeps mercy for thousands that love him and keep his commandments. Notice that keeping the commandments gets you mercy. It doesn't get you justice. It doesn't get you reward. It gets you mercy. And so this obedience is a means. It's not meritorious. This is often sadly confused in our lives. This is often where many Christians go astray. We can go astray in the Trinity, and we can go astray in our piety. Many Christians will read this and think, well, Christ is telling me I have to earn something by keeping his commandments. Then they become legalistic. Or people will read this and think, I can't earn anything, so I'm going to ignore his commandments. And they become antinomians. In both cases, they miss the love. They miss the glory, and they miss the friendship. These are not meritorious. These are means of blessing. And there's a couple of objections to this kind of doctrine. First, Paul deals with one of these objections in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. He says, what shall we say to these things? If we're saved by grace, we're justified by faith, apart from works, does that mean we should sin so that grace might abound. Paul says, God forbid. That's presumptuous. You're dead to sin. Why would you live any longer in it? Why did Christ die so that we can continue sinning? Absolutely not. He freed you from sin so that you could be more and more sanctified. 
Secondly, in Jude 4, Jude verse 4, Jude speaks about false teachers. And he says, false teachers turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. Now, that's a good $50 word. Lasciviousness comes from a Greek word. Aselgia is the Greek word. And this word simply means unrestrained seeking out of carnal pleasure. This can be sex, can be food, can be drink, can be emotional expression. It can be anything that is unrestrained. That's what the word means. It's a a license to let go and do whatever feels good. Jude says there's many false teachers who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. Now, here's just something useful to guard your hearts and minds with. If you hear any kind of teaching from a Christian teacher or in a Christian book that turns the grace of God into a license to sin, run as fast as you can. That's not coming from the Holy Spirit. That's coming from the flesh. So Christ says, keep my commandments and you will abide in my love. Now notice what he says in verse 11. It's so that he has spoken these things to us so that my joy may remain in you and your joy may be full. The joy that he's speaking about is the joy of the gospel, not the joy of the world. The joy of the world is to please oneself. All throughout the scriptures you'll find in the book of Proverbs and Jeremiah, uh, you'll find descriptions, uh, Romans 1 verse 32, descriptions of worldly joy. And when, what are they described as? Worldly joy are those who delight to do evil. They delight to gratify themselves. Paul writes about this kind of worldliness in 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, Paul writes this, verses 1 and 2. He says, but know this, in the last days, perilous times will come. Why? For men will be lovers of themselves. The word used there, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. The word is philautos, lover of oneself. Now, it's interesting, the Greek word that that's based on is the word for friendly or brotherly love. You know the city of Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Well, it's the same word that Paul uses here, but it's based on self-centered love. Definition in one of the dictionaries describes it this way. Self-centered or selfish, 2 Timothy 2.3. An undue sparing of self with the primary concern that things be easy and pleasant for oneself. The philautos is one who loves his life so much that he seeks ignobly to save it. And Paul says this will characterize the perilous times to come. That's not the joy that Christ promises us here. The joy that Christ promises us is the joy of the gospel. And the joy of the gospel is pleasing Christ. The the joy of the gospel is a conscience that answers to our actions that we have done what is pleasing in the sight of Christ. Not perfectly, not without fault, but sincerely, honestly endeavoring to please Him. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, Paul describes this kind of joy. Uh, He describes the the characteristic of a Christian. He says, 
in verse 9, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what He's done in the body, according to what He has done, whether good or bad. Psalm 119, 61 through 68 is a great description of this kind of joy. I'll just read it for you briefly. Psalm 119, 61 through 68. Uh, Pardon me, 65. You've dealt well with your servant according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Uh, That's not the passage I had in mind. Well, pardon me that. You know that there is a passage in Psalm 119 that speaks about how much I have loved your law. Your law is my delight. Pleasing you is obeying your commandments because it's pleasing to me. And it's this kind of joy that causes us to endure trial and tribulation. Remember what Christ is preparing them for. He's going to be taken away. Their friend is going to be murdered in front of their eyes. Their Lord and Savior, the one who had the words of life, the one who taught them things about God they had never heard before, is going to be beaten, shamed, and spat upon right in front of their eyes. And the joy that Christ is promising them is going to bear them up through the trial. Listen to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Listen. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Verse 5 are all descriptions of joy. Feasting, anointing, drinking, all of this joy in the midst of these trials. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so Christ tells us this is the model of our friendship with Him. Now let me just apply this very briefly. At least this first point. Christ's model for us. One, we have to be careful we don't put the cart before the horse. What do I mean by putting the cart before the horse? Well, if you want to move something with a horse and a cart, if the cart is in front of the horse, you're not going to get very far. You have to put them in the right order cart behind the horse, and then you'll get somewhere. Likewise, we often seek joy without obedience. We we often seek blessing without submission. We often seek greater knowledge and understanding of Christ without using the means He has appointed. Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14, would be a good passage for you to meditate on. God promises the blessings upon obedience. And he says, if you are mindful to keep my commandments, I will shower upon you the blessings of heaven. You will not be able to contain them all if you keep my commandments. If you walk in the path of my commandments. 
Putting the cart before the horse is the source of many false gospels. Think about Joel Osteen. You can have your best life now. Every day is a Friday. Think about the health and wealth gospel. Think about the happy, clappy gospel. Think about all the false gospels that are out there that preach a worldly joy based upon the grace of Christ. Secondly, I want to encourage you in this, because if you're like me, you may feel that obedience is impossible for you. Well, take heart. You are not very far from the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 3, Christ gives us a picture of how we obey him. Mark 3, 1. He entered a synagogue again, and there was a man there with a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, and so they, that they might accuse him. He said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. He asked them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. When he had looked around at them with anger, grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Now think about what Christ has just done. He would be lambasted in our culture for this. You have a man with a paralyzed hand. Christ calls him up in the middle of the synagogue and says, stand right there in the middle. And then Christ says to the man with the withered hand, he's paralyzed, stretch it out. How dare he put that paralytic man on the spot? Notice what happens. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Now, how is this man able to obey the command of Christ? He does not have the power in himself. He's paralyzed. Christ, with the command, gives a promise of grace. The only way this man can do it is by putting his faith in the power of Christ and trusting in Christ's power. He obeys the command, and in the midst of the obedience, he's healed by trusting in Christ, not in himself. That's what our obedience is like as Christians. Christ commands us to do things that you cannot do. You and I are spiritual paralytics. We cannot do what Christ commands us to do. And what he wants for us to do, what's implied in all of his commands, is look to me, trust in my power, and start stretching it out. And see how you'll be healed by walking in the way of his commandments. So Christ tells us that he's the model. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You also keep my commandments and you'll abide in my love. Well, Christ gives us the model, but he also tells us what the duty of friends are. And we'll be a little bit briefer on these two, but in verses 12 through 15, he now gives us what, what is the command, Christ? What are we supposed to do? Well, he tells us, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Notice that the standard of his commandment is himself. The standard of our obedience is Christ's own obedience. He says, love one another as I have loved you. He goes on and describes the degree of our love for one another. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. How did Christ love us? He died for us. How are you supposed to love your brothers? 
die for them, just as Christ died for you. That's the degree of the love we are to exercise. Notice also the objects of the friendship. He says, verse 14, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. The friends of Christ are those who do the will of Christ in keeping his commandments. That's James's point in chapter 2. Abraham was a friend of God because he believed God and obeyed God. And he was called the friend of God. That's what Christ is teaching here. You are my friends if you do what I have commanded you. And then finally in this section he concludes with the source of the duty. Look at verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now we need to keep in mind why he reveals this to us. The source of this duty is not Christ himself. It's God the Father. This phrase, these are the Father's words, in John 14 and 15, they function to ratify the doctrine The phrase is used to enforce the duty or the doctrine that Christ has just revealed. John 14.10, do not believe that I am in the Father. Uh, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Verse 31, that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Christ uses this phrase to enforce the doctrine. Why? It's often easy for us to mistake what it is that God wants. I think it's very easy for us to think that God wants us to do great things for Him. Miracles, revivals, preaching, all these great things, become a missionary to Africa, wants us to do all these wonderful, amazing things that would look great on the movie screen. But all that the Father really wants is obedience to this commandment. Love one another as Christ has loved you. That's all the Father wants. Christ gives a warning in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 23. Matthew 7, 21 and 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness you who disregarded the commands of my father I never knew you and so the duty of friends the duty of the friends of Christ is to love one another as he has loved us well there's not only a duty in friendship there's also a privilege there's a vast privilege That's what he goes to now in verses 16 and 17. Look at what he says in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. This is electing 
grace. This small token of the privilege of being one of Christ's friends. Can you imagine how holy the living God is? How almighty He is? How satisfied He is in heaven with nothing that He has created? He stands in need of none of us. And yet, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I picked you out. And I made you one of mine. This is Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 1. I'll just read some of these choice passages. Ephesians chapter 1. He begins by glorying in the doctrine of election. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. Brothers and sisters, when God reveals the doctrine of election to you, it is to cause you to rejoice in His grace. It is to cause you to praise Him for His unmerited favor. Paul goes on and speaks about this doctrine in uh, chapter 2. I won't read it at length, but chapter 2, there's, there's just more of this same doctrine. Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, you did not choose me made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, raised us up together with Christ, made us sit in the heavenly places, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. I chose you. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This doctrine of election is both that he chose us and that he chose us to be fruitful. I'll just say this for the sake of time. No need to turn there, but in Zephaniah 3.17, I want you to see how much God loves His people. Listen to this. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Did you know that God sings over you? As we down here sing to him, he up there is rejoicing over us, singing over us. Not because we chose him, <clears throat> but because he 
chose us. That's one of the great privileges of being one of Christ's friends. He makes the choice. And he brings you into that relationship. Notice in verse 16, he goes on, he says, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. This fruitfulness, the way that we bear this fruit is expressed in prayer. St. Augustine once said, command what you will and give what you command. I mentioned Christ is our model of what it means to be a friend of God. And Christ, who was perfectly obedient, who always did what the Father required of Him, even He, when it came to the point of obedience, had to pray. When He was in the garden and His soul was sorrowful even to death, He knew that the great act of obedience was coming and He went to prayer. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but if not, nevertheless, let your will be done and not mine. Brothers and sisters, if you would be the friend of God, pray that you enter not into temptation. Pray that you would keep His commandments. Pray that you would walk in the way that Christ has set before you. He concludes by repeating the command. He repeats this command because it's important. These things I command you, that you love one another. That's the thing Christ is pleased with. That's the thing Christ wants. That's the thing the Father wants. That's the thing Christ will bless. And that's the thing that will cause your joy to remain. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus and the friendship that he has brought us into with you. We pray you would help us to live as his friends, to walk in the path of righteousness for your name's sake, and that you would indeed anoint our heads with oil and cause our cups to run over, and that we might rejoice in the midst of our enemies, knowing that goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.